two and a half year journey through the book of Acts. Kind of sounded like a broken record, right? I kind of say that every week. Probably need to change that up. This will be our 86th sermon in the series. <laughs> Woo, that's a lot of work. Man, it's been great. Last Sunday, we wrapped up chapter 18. Chapter 18, we looked at how Paul began his third missionary journey in Galatia and Phrygia. We surveyed the Asian city, the Asia Minor city called Ephesus, and we were introduced to Apollos, that gentleman. And you know, we have all our sermons online, so if you miss a week, you can always go back and listen to an audio file, download an MP3. It's a good thing. And I'd encourage you guys to go back if you missed out. The whole series is online, so. This morning, we will begin to study Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which lasted about three years. Please take your Bibles and turn on over to 19, chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today, Lord willing. We're certainly going to try to get through that text. And I'll I'll pray one more time and then we'll get to work. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Send the Holy Spirit to this place that he may discern, translate, interpret Scripture for us, for we, not, we do not have that ability to understand Scripture apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it says in 1 Corinthians. Send the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to the truth. Lord, I pray for a mighty work in our midst today. It won't be by my preaching, it won't be by my doing or anyone else. The only one that can do a mighty work is you, Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our lives here. We have come in as A, we want to leave as B, different, conformed to the image of Christ, sanctified, make it so. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1. Aren't you kind of excited that we're in 19 now? It seems like these chapters are going a little faster, and that's basically because Luke is really beginning to summarize, you know, he's not showing us these full sermons anymore and things like that. He really begins to summarize, and so things are a little more expedited. But we're going to pick up right there in verse 1, and it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, is what it says. Luke begins by telling us very plainly where Apollos went to after he left Ephesus. You remember last week how we talked about at the latter part of chapter 18 where he was this gospel preacher, but his message was a little shy of being holistic. He didn't have the baptism component down, and, and, uh, and a, a lovely married couple with matching names came to him and encouraged him and exhorted him, and he got on track. He, he had the gospel down, and he went away from Ephesus, and he went up into Corinth is what Luke begins to tell us. That's where he went right after he left Ephesus. He crossed over the Aegean Sea and went to the port city of Corinth, where Paul has already been to. At the same time, Paul wanted to make good on his promise to return to Ephesus. We also learned about that weeks and weeks ago. He had a a brief stop off in Ephesus, and he didn't stay there for more than a few days. He had a a pact or a, a pledge to fulfill, and he had to go give a report to his church back in Syrian Antioch. He wanted to also give a report down in Jerusalem to the apostles. And so he didn't stay in Ephesus long, but he did make a promise. If the Lord had willed it, he would return. He was hopeful that the Jews he had spoken to a few weeks or months back would still be interested in his teachings in the gospel. You remember, he was somewhat well-received in the synagogue at Ephesus when he popped in there the first time. They listened to the gospel, and they were kind of intrigued, and he said, well, I'll leave a couple of people with you that'll help you, but i got to get out of here. So he was hoping that those little flames were still kind of stoked and going, that he might return right in where he left off. 
He wanted to get to Ephesus quickly after leaving his home church in Syrian Antioch and after going and beginning that third journey in Galatia and Phrygia. He wanted to get to Ephesus pretty quickly, and so he took what is referred to here as the inland country or what we might call the upper route. If he would have taken the southern route, which was the trade route, it would have taken him through all sorts of other provinces and places, and it would have taken it would have tripled his time. And so he decides to take the country route because it's going to be an expedited route. It's going to be a faster route. And it's interesting because it actually goes through the high mountains. So usually we don't think of making good speed and time by going through mountains, do we? Of course, all of these mountains there were quite lower. They were more like foothills. And so he took that lower route because it was shorter and it would have been quicker. Now, after entering Ephesus, he immediately discovered some disciples. It's as if these disciples were hanging out at the city gates. I mean, it's like he, he, he gets into town and then, bam, he finds disciples. That's kind of interesting. Disciples is translated mathetes in Greek, and it, it basically means follower. When you see it in the New Testament, it's a reference to a follower. It is a generalized term. And in the New Testament, it is usually used in reference to three types of followers. If you do a little Mathetes or disciples study in the New Testament, you'll find that it's a reference to followers of Jesus. You'll find that it's followers of John the Baptist. And you'll also find that it's followers of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, remember those uber-religious types who rejected Jesus Christ, you know, hanging themselves upon their, their own traditions and things. They actually made their own disciples, which Jesus said were twice the sons of hell as themselves in Matthew 17, or Matthew 23, I believe. And so you have followers of Jesus as disciples, followers of John the Baptist, and followers of the Pharisees. Now, there is much debate over who the disciples here in our text were following. There's no debate over the fact that they were not, I mean, they were not following the Pharisees. Pharisees would not step foot in Ephesus. So the debate is over, were they followers of Jesus or were they followers of John the Baptist? Now, I suspect that they were followers of Jesus, but not in the most accurate sense. It is completely possible to be a follower of Jesus and not to know him rightly, not to know him in a saving way. And I believe that the rest of this text, this passage, will make it clear that they were followers of Jesus in a sense, to a degree. After speaking to the disciples for a moment, Paul noticed something about their testimony or something about their behavior, something about their words, something about their actions. He noticed that something was missing and he became concerned. It is a bit similar to what happened between Priscilla, remember, and Aquila and Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila listened to Apollos preach and they noticed that something was missing. They noticed that he had an incomplete view of Christian baptism or something along those lines, something of that nature. And after he preached, I mentioned this, they sat him down and instructed him and he went away on fire for Christ. They noticed a deficiency in Apollos. And here we read that Paul noticed a deficiency in these disciples that he met at Ephesus. Now because of these two similar back-to-back -back scenarios, some commentators say that the disciples were followers or students of Apollos. Because he was confused about something, he was making disciples of himself who were also equally confused. Apollos was off and therefore his disciples would be off. And there's a close connection here and that's where people run crazy with that. But there are massive differences between Apollos and these disciples. You go back to the latter part of 18 and you look at that he was fervent in spirit. He had the Holy Spirit. He was trained in the Lord and these things. And, and here we see guys, we will begin to see them and they seemingly know nothing. And so I don't think it's fair to assess or to say that Apollos was the instructor to these guys who were clueless. He was not like them. Apollos was not like them in many ways and vice versa. 
Apollos, therefore, did not lead them into error. Noticing that something was wrong and being filled with concern, Paul asked them a question. Look at verses 2 through 3. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I just love it when people are brutally honest. Well, you know, they don't want to make themselves look bad or what have you, and they begin to make things up or say, yeah, kind of. Well, these guys just absolutely said, now we have no idea that, 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 that that's a reality. And he said, into what then? Okay, if you say you've never heard of the Holy Spirit, then you've got to ask this question next. Into what then were you baptized? And they responded into John's baptism is what they said. Now, this is an interesting and potentially perplexing question here and response. Now, we must know what the Bible teaches. Repeatedly, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is present and active in the life of a person at the moment they first believe. We refer to his presence and work that beginning initial work as the doctrine of regeneration. I talk about it all the time here at this church. The Holy Spirit comes to a sinner in resurrection power, carrying with him the gifts of faith and repentance. We see that so clearly in Romans 12.3 and 2 Tim 2.25. He enters the sinner and gives him a new heart, Ezekiel 36.26. And the sinner joyfully embraces the gift of faith, repents of his sins, and begins a new life in Christ as a saint. That's the doctrine of regeneration. The Spirit's work in regeneration is seen in the example of Lazarus. Jesus' friend Lazarus had died and had been laid in a tomb. When Jesus came to Bethany to visit those who were grieving, he worked one of the greatest miracles of his ministry. He approached the tomb of Lazarus and, and called for the large stone to be rolled away. After being removed, he began to cry out in a mighty voice, Lazarus, come out! The people watching him must have thought he was out of his mind. Lazarus had been dead for four days and had begun to stink. The King James Version says he stinketh. You little stinker. But all of a sudden he appeared and walked out of the tomb. Now the parallel is this. Lazarus was dead and immobile. He had no pulse. He had no ability to respond. He was a corpse, a stinky corpse. Before he could sit up, before he could stand up, before he could walk out, he had to be brought to life. Corpses don't walk. You've seen Weekend at Bernie's. You've got to force it. You know that terrible, stupid, funny movie? Corpses don't walk, last time I checked. You see, before he could sit up and stand up and, and walk out, before he could respond or do anything, he had to be brought to life. Now, it is the same with spiritually dead sinners. Before they can understand, before they can repent, before they can believe, before they can obey, they must be brought to life. Now, Jesus brought Lazarus to life with his regenerating words. Lazarus, come out. And the Holy Spirit brings sinners to life with his regenerating presence and power. Also, the Bible teaches that all who believe in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26, John 7, 39, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22, Ephesians 1, 13. I could blast you with verses. It also teaches that it is impossible to believe in Jesus apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 17, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Now these fundamental truths, these biblical doctrines, this doctrine of regeneration, these truths about the presence of the Holy Spirit shed massive light on Paul's question. Paul knows that belief in Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit go together. He wrote about these things in his epistles. 
He knows that they are essentially two sides of the same coin. He knows the order too. He knows that when the spirit comes, belief follows. He gets this. He knows the order. He gets all of these things. He understands these things. Now, somehow Paul could tell that the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit. As I said, they might have been acting a certain way. They might have been saying strange things. I get the sense that they were sitting around waiting for something to happen rather than going about spreading the gospel. We don't know, but Paul could tell that the Spirit was not in them. He could hear it, see it. He knew it. And he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This was his way of saying, why don't you have the Holy Spirit? What do you believe in? Who are you following? Who do you believe in? That's essentially what he's asking. Now we ask the same question at times, don't we? We meet people who claim to be followers of Jesus, and then we notice their behavior, maybe something about their words, maybe their interpretation of certain scriptures is way off, and we ask, which Jesus do you follow? Which Jesus do you believe in, or what, yeah, which version, what Bible are you reading You're following the Jesus of the Bible because, quite frankly, and with all due respect, he's not down with what you're saying and doing. What you're doing is teaching something that is contradictory to Scripture, and as a follower of Jesus, that should very well be an impossibility. I know people who claim to be followers of Jesus but don't have the Holy Spirit, Their lives are not marked by the fruits of the Spirit. They say they love Jesus, but they don't act like they love Jesus. Actually, they seem to love the things that Jesus hates and hate the things that Jesus loves. These people are everywhere. The world is filled with these kinds of disciples. The church is filled with these kinds of disciples. The Bible has a number of different terms in reference to these people, tares amongst the wheat, and so on. And what we're looking at in our text is a classic example of this. We have a group of men who called themselves disciples, but at the same time did not believe in Jesus in a saving way. How do we know this? Because they did not have the Holy Spirit. In fact, the text takes it even further. Look at the answer they gave Paul. I just said it. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Paul must have thought, what? Disciples of Jesus who have not heard of the Holy Spirit? Impossible. These guys were literally unaware of one of the most important days in biblical and world history. The day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was born. The Jerusalem revival. They were unaware of the Holy Spirit-led revivals in in Samaria and Caesarea. Paul must have been baffled at this point. The Holy Spirit was at work throughout this entire region. And to be a follower of Jesus and to, to have never heard of, to know nothing about the Holy Spirit is incredible. Seeking to get to the bottom of their beliefs, right? Knowing without a shadow of a doubt that something is wrong. He asked another question. He says, into what then were you baptized? Paul somehow knew that these disciples had been baptized. It could be that they were trying to evangelize people at the city gates and part of their message had to do with baptism. You remember, Christian preaching and baptism went together. Maybe when Paul approached the city gates... You know, they may have told him to repent and be baptized. Hello, sir. Welcome to Ephesus. We are disciples of Jesus. Please repent and be baptized. I doubt it happened that way, but we don't know how it went down. Now, Paul's question was meant to cut right to the core of the matter. 
It was meant to expose once and for all what these disciples believed, or better yet, who they believed in. The answer the disciples will give will reveal what they truly believe. That's why Paul asked the question, and how did they answer? They said, into John's baptism. These disciples had been baptized into John the Baptist's baptism. This means that their baptism was preparatory rather than proving. Now let me try to explain. John baptized for the purpose of preparing people for the arrival of the Messiah. As R.C. Sproul rightly put it, he kind of gives us an idea of John's, you know, based on the scriptures of his study, I mean, he gives us an idea of what John basically preached as he went about or at the River Jordan. He would say something in, in this effect, that the Messiah is coming, your Savior is at the door, and you are not ready. You are still unclean, so you need to undergo a rite of cleansing to prepare yourself for the coming of the King, and after he comes, he will baptize you with the Spirit. That is the gist of John the Baptist's preaching. John's Baptism was a preparatory baptism. He worked to get people ready for the Messiah. But Jesus had already come, which means that baptism took on a newer and fuller meaning. In the Old Testament, baptism was about preparation, what John the Baptist preached and did and practiced. In the New Testament, baptism is about proving our faith in Christ and identifying ourselves with him. It's a physical testimony of our inward belief. Since the disciples had received only the baptism of John, they were still in a preparatory mode. In other words, they were still trying to ready themselves for the coming Messiah. They were like the Old Testament saints. They believed in the coming Messiah and readying themselves for his arrival. As soon as they answered Paul's question into John's baptism, Paul knew exactly what their problem was. He knew that they had a pre-incarnate type of faith. He knew that they had a Messiah is coming kind of faith rather than a Messiah has come kind of faith. And this would be the faith of your typical Judaism. He knew that they had yet to believe in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, as well as in the helper who came at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit. And for me, it's hard to imagine how these guys were unaware of all of these things. As disciples of John living in that region, it's difficult to grasp how they missed Messiah, the cross, and the resurrection. As I was studying, I, I read that there were many like them in the area. Disciples of John the Baptist existed in that region well into the second century A.D. I know John the Baptist himself would not have been happy about that. Followers of himself, after and even long after the Messiah had come, no, that would have discouraged him. The purpose of his ministry, again, was to prepare people for Jesus and to point people to Jesus. He knew this. It became clear to him when he baptized Jesus and heard God say, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. One time he was standing with his own disciples, these disciples, and, and he pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Before imprisonment, uh, his ministry began to shrink. It began to dwindle down as his disciples were leaving him and, and going to follow Jesus. And in response, he said, I must decrease so Jesus may increase. John knew who Jesus was and pointed others to him. Sadly, many who followed John stuck with John. They didn't transition to Jesus like they were supposed to do. Many of the original disciples of John continued to make disciples of John after he was killed. And then their disciples made disciples, and then their disciples made disciples, and so on. The cycle continued for over 200 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Talk about missing the boat. Like Dobson at Jurassic Park. You see, this great danger exists today. Pastors who have strong leadership skills and charisma and powerful speaking gifts can 
unintentionally or very intentionally make their own disciples. Disciples who follow their every move, do whatever they say, read all their books, attend all their conferences, join all their networks, adopt all their ministry methods, and pretty much market and distribute all their materials. I refer to these pastors as rock stars and their disciples as roadies. Is this what Jesus had in mind for his church? Rock stars and roadies, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against my rock stars and their roadies. You know, what happens is the rock star pastor gets exalted and seemingly venerated, and the Lord Jesus is put on the high shelf or in the back seat, or in some cases, he's just put out completely. He's nowhere to be found. The ministry becomes all about that dude. And in the end, we are left with multitudes of disciples of men, not of Christ. This is tragic. Friends, this is pervasive today, just as it was in the first century. There are rock stars and roadies everywhere. Now back to the text Once Paul diagnosed the disciples' problem, their pre-incarnate type of faith, he prescribed the remedy. Look at verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who comes, who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Paul basically said, in effect, the purpose of John's baptism and preaching was to prepare and point people to the Messiah. That is Jesus. You see, these must have been the most liberating and joyous words these guys had ever heard. The Messiah isn't coming. He already came, and his name is Jesus. Now, I believe that Paul elaborated here. I believe that he went on to describe how Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose from the grave and conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell and how he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the majesty and how he will come again in glory. Read his epistles, especially Ephesians, to see how Paul unpacked the gospel. I think he elaborated. But because of time constraints, Luke abbreviates. He does this all the time. He must have went into detail. The end of the Gospel of John, it says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to write the stuff down. Yeah, Jesus said and did, or at the very minimum, did more than what is recorded. So I think he elaborated. Luke likes to abbreviate, summarize, and drive home his main points. Paul's explanation of Jesus in this text isn't the main point of this text. Now think about these disciples after hearing this. Their hope would have been shifted off of the one to come onto the one who came and is coming again. What joy they must have had at the hearing of Paul's words. How did they respond? Look at verse 5. This is great. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They basically responded by submitting themselves to the Lord Jesus in faith and then, obviously, requested to be baptized. How come repentance isn't mentioned here? Isn't repentance a necessary part of gospel preaching? Paul is, in effect, preaching the gospel. Paul might have preached repentance, but Luke simply didn't record it. I think these disciples were already repentant. They had received John's baptism, which was about living in repentance. These guys had already turned away from the life of self, the life of sin, towards the coming Messiah. Their repentance was already in place, and that's why Paul didn't mention it. You know, those who approach the foot of the cross with contrite hearts and and bankrupt spirits do not need to be told to repent. They need to be affirmed. 
We need to identify their repentance, explaining why they feel the way they do. They are Matthew 5, 3, but those who approach the foot of the cross in pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, and scoffing must be commanded to repent. You know, when the Holy Spirit invaded my life, I didn't need people to come to me and tell me to repent and turn from my self-sufficiency. Why? Because the Holy Spirit helped me, made me realize that my self-sufficiency was completely insufficient. I couldn't save myself. This was a reality that I had never thought about or experienced. And in a nanosecond, I knew I was toast on my own. I couldn't save myself. See, repentance is an important and necessary part of gospel gossiping, speaking the gospel, and preaching, but we must also know our audience, right? Who is in front of us? What is their condition and attitude? Is the Holy Spirit already at work in their life? We must assess them, listen and assess them, and be willing to adjust our method, not our message. Some will require a heavy emphasis on repentance. And others, more of an affirmation of what the Holy Spirit is already doing in them. Now, I think that's what's going on here in the text. The Holy Spirit is at work. They can't recognize it. Something's happening. They're on a path. Now, how did Paul respond to their, you know, new faith and their request to be baptized? I know the text doesn't say that. But it has to be there because that's been the order and the way that it has worked since the beginning of Acts. Nothing's changed here. What did he do when they said, we believe and we want to be baptized? He baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. As I said, the pattern and order in Acts is what? Repentance, belief, and baptism. Now let's look at verses 6 through 7. Six through seven. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Verse six is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. People have slaughtered this verse, absolutely annihilated it. Some say that it teaches that a person does not receive the Holy Spirit until they're baptized. Baptismal regeneration is what that's referred to. And some say it teaches that there exists a second blessing in the form of a ritualistic baptism called baptism of the Holy Spirit where you can receive the gift of tongues and or prophecy or something else. Both views are based on terrible interpretation. Bad interpretation. Have you ever heard of the term eisegesis? Does that ring a bell? Eisegesis, not as in Jesus Lord, G-E-S-I-S, E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S, eisegesis. Eisegesis means to interpret a Bible verse or passage by reading into it one's own ideas. It means to layer your thoughts and beliefs, preconceived notions, onto a text. And have you heard of exegesis, which is essentially the opposite? Exegesis means to provide a critical interpretation of the text apart from one's own ideas. It means to interpret scripture just as it is and in accordance with the original language and in light of all scripture. Now it is through eisegesis that the errors and false doctrines come forth. Men look at a verse, they search their thoughts, they imagine what that verse might mean and then they provide an interpretation. Let me give you a classic example of this from John 3.16. Everyone will be familiar. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most famous verse in the universe. Okay, we all have heard that over and over and over. We've read it a thousand times. Isogetical interpretation of that verse, Christ came and died for the whole world. That's an isogetical interpretation. An exegetical ter- interpretation is God so loved the world. Now, which one does the verse say? Does it say that Christ came and died for everyone? Or does it say God so loved the world? You see, one is an eisegetical approach. It's looking at it and misreading it and misinterpreting, misinterpreting it and then coming to the conclusion that it says that since God so loved the world that he, Christ must have came and died for every single person. That's eisegesis. The big kicker is that it says, and I don't know how eisegetical people come to this conclusion, that whoever believes. That's not everyone. The verse itself annihilates the idea that Christ came to die for everyone. And so do the first one through 16 verses of that chapter. Destroys it. You see, if we come to the scripture, and I get it. We're people, we're emotional, we've heard a lot of things taught. We've been exposed to all kinds of teaching, some good, some bad. We develop this theology, we develop this preconceived notion, we have these ideas about God and and how he must be exactly and what he does and what he's obligated to do in some sense. And then we look at a verse and we begin to layer our feelings, emotions, understanding onto the verse instead of reading it plainly, studying it plainly, and coming up with the interpretation that's right there. Now, have you attended a church where the guy is an eisegetical preacher. And where you see this most is where you have topical sermons, where you have a subject and then a guy throws a zillion verses at the subject. That's all eisegetics. That's all that is. Exegetical preachers, exegetical churches, churches that work the scriptures line by line and hold them in context and hold them in light of all other scripture are such a rarity today. What makes us feel better as human beings, as fallen sinners, to come up with our own interpretations that scratch our flesh or to just plainly deal with what God is saying exactly as it's said? Which one caters to our flesh more? I can tell you this, the word of God does not cater to our flesh, period. It challenges, it condemns, And it also lifts up in a holy way. If we look at any verse, especially Acts 19.6, through the lenses of eisegesis, it's pretty easy to come up with a wide variety of personal interpretations and personal meanings. But if we keep verse 6 in its direct context, verses 1 through 5, and in the broader context of all scripture, that would be exegesis, if you will, we can achieve the proper interpretation. In fact, the only way that you can interpret Scripture properly is in exegetical form. It's impossible to come up with what's right the other way. Here is what Paul did in verse 6. This is the verse of massive debate, crazy, wacky theology, insane misunderstanding that has led countless millions into heresy. This is the verse. Here's what he did. He simply put his hands on the disciples to show them that they were accepted and included in the church. That's all the laying on of hands is. That's all it ever is. In some cases, when the Lord Jesus laid his hands on people, he healed them. In some cases, the apostles did that as well. They didn't walk around and possess healing power. The Spirit worked the miracle through them in the moment. No one has ever been anointed apart from Jesus Christ with those powers. No one. All he did was put his hands on these men to show them that they were accepted and included in the church. They believed, they were baptized, the Holy Spirit was in them. That's all he did. That's it. He did not anoint them with the Holy Spirit or with spiritual gifts. Paul could not transfer the Spirit or spiritual gifts to anyone. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can do those things. What we have here is a timing issue. 
These things happened as Paul was ministering to these guys. Paul wasn't making them happen. God was. Paul was simply a servant of God, not the orchestrator, not the distributor. And when the Holy Spirit came upon these men at the touch of Paul, this wasn't a regenerating or saving act because they already had faith and been baptized. You don't baptize non-believers. The scriptures forbade that. The Spirit came upon them for the purpose of anointing them with noticeable gifts so that Paul and others could see that they were truly saved and possessed by the Holy Spirit. Now this has happened again and again and again. You remember what took place at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon 120 believers and anointed them with the gift of tongues. Keep in mind, the Holy Spirit came upon what? Believers. They were already believers. He came upon them, anointed them with the gift of tongues. They went out and preached the gospel to a large multicultural, multilingual group. 3,000 were saved and the church was born. Read Acts chapter 2. Remember what took place at Caesarea? Peter, uh, Peter traveled there and preached the gospel to Cornelius and his household, uh, and, and everyone got saved. Cornelius and his household and his servants, everyone got saved, and they all began to speak in tongues, Acts chapter 10. In Jerusalem and at Caesarea, the gospel was preached. People got saved and baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon them, anointing them with tongues as a sign Churches were planted and spiritual revivals were ignited. That is exactly what's happening here in Ephesus. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's all that we're seeing here. There's nothing new, nothing exotic, nothing crazy, nothing special. It's the same stuff. I'd say it's special. It's the same stuff that we've been reading. And why I don't people come to this technical, look, there's a new thing. Let's get a system down so we can touch people and give them a gift and baptize them a special way and, and do these things. And next thing you know, we should all be leaving on a Honda. The only way to land at that interpretation is to, to do it from an eisegetical standpoint. To read into the text what you want to believe. And what you think is fair and what you think is right and will give, we'll give you basically the upper hand. I, I don't know why people do what they do. I know what I do what I do and most of the time it's because I'm a selfish sinner. This is exactly what happened at Ephesus. It is the same thing from Jerusalem. We could even talk about Samaria, talk about Caesarea and in all the other places. Think about the global impact of the gospel at this point in the narrative. The Holy Spirit was triangulating between major cities. Why? So the gospel could be spread to the rest of the world. You've got Jerusalem to the south. You've got Caesarea to the north. And now we have Ephesus to the east and all the other places in between. The spread and global impact of the gospel is the theme of this text, without a shadow of a doubt. That is the point. That is the reality that God wants us to draw from this text. And this was foreordained and foretold. What prophetic statement did Jesus make right before he ascended into heaven? Acts 1.8, we began our series with this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now think about this. For the gospel to reach the end of the earth, it had to first pass through Ephesus. That's all we're reading about here. To make this text about baptismal regeneration or a second blessing through baptism of the Holy Spirit or about tongues, languages, or anything else is to completely misunderstand and misinterpret this text. This text has nothing to do with those things. It does not contain them, and it does not support them. Don't be an eisegete. Don't layer your thoughts and ideas onto Scripture. 
be an exegete. Take a text just as it is, study it in context, compare it with other scripture, believe it, obey it, and share it just as Paul did at the gates of Ephesus. Every one of us will be provided in some way, shape, or form with an opportunity to to proclaim the actual truth to someone who's confused. We just talked about how there's people everywhere who say they're following Jesus and don't act like it or live like it or speak like it or anything. What a grand opportunity for us to bear witness to them. What was Paul doing in Ephesus? He was essentially taking some guys who I think for the most part meant well, but who were misinformed, who who lacked understanding, who weren't even saved. Are we so afraid of people today that when we see behavior and craziness in these things that we just won't say, I I don't really think you're really following Jesus. It, It looks different. Are we afraid to say these things to people? Because they're everywhere, friends. The scary thing is that we we hear that, oh, you're a follower of Jesus, and then we just assume, and then we leave it at that, and then we just go about our business. What if Paul had left these guys at the gates and just walked away? You know these people. Some of them live under our own roofs. We ought to do all we can to proclaim the gospel in a whole, full sense. And when we see things that don't line up, and and I tell you what, we are going to have the most grand opportunity to do this. I think it's going to be in an unprecedented way with the way our culture, the direction it's moving, and with how so many in the church are following on this gay marriage thing. And that's just one issue. Are we going to sit back and say, it's okay, you're right, there's a different way to look at Scripture? That would be equivalent to walking away from these disciples and saying, okay, you believe in Jesus, see you later. We have the same Jesus. You believe things that contradict Scripture, and and yet you believe Jesus, and we're just going to allow room for some eisegetical understanding of certain texts. We are obligated to speak truth in love. Not to walk away or to assume or to let people travel down the broad road. We ought to be, they ought to be dragging us. We ought to be clinging to their ankles as they go down the broad road. Don't do it. And what do we do? Ah, oh, well, there's a different way to look at it. So, huh, go off. Go off. And it doesn't have to be the gay marriage thing. It can be a lot of things. Now, we are to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the, a reason for the hope that is in us. Yet may we do it with gentleness and respect. This isn't about annihilating people. It's not about hurting people. It's not about, it's not, we're not trying to offend, we're not trying to hurt, we're not trying to, let the word do those things. We're just trying to be truthful and right with Scripture. And when we see these things around us and when we interact with people and we listen to them, and we're not supposed to just run around pointing out everyone's sin and all these things. Not in that way. But may we be like Paul and be bold enough to ask some questions to try to get to the bottom of where someone's at, to try to figure out why they believe what they believe, and then that we would know the Scripture well enough to say, well, let me help you understand something. Maybe become listeners in order for Paul to come up with his hypothesis, his diagnosis. He had to listen. He asked questions and then listened to what they said. Paul wasn't interested in any way in just converting people. He wanted people to be part of the bride of Christ. In fact, he wanted it so badly, he said of his own brothers, the Jews, I'd just give up my own salvation so that they could all be saved. It wasn't about winning arguments with him or about putting notches on a belt or anything weird or stupid like that. 
It's about a desire, a deep desire for people to know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way, which is the most amazing thing that you could ever experience. That's it. We have a time to respond communion. Communion is for believers only. If you have yet to submit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you want to sit this out. I would also say to you, if you are a believer and you have no intention of turning from sin, I would also tell you to sit it out. You got no business taking it. And maybe, I don't know what sin you're wrestling with this morning. I don't know where you're at or what you've been going through. Maybe it has something to do with this. Maybe you're like these disciples and you say, I love Jesus and I follow Jesus, but you're not living that way. You're living in a way that just completely contradicts that. Maybe you know you've strayed from Christ. You've walked away from the, the sheep pen, if you will. You've walked away from the shepherd. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. You spend some time, believer, before you take these elements, if you intend to take them, take some a moment reflecting upon what you've heard. Repent of any sin that you have. Remember what Christ did, his finished work, and be refreshed by God's grace. Don't walk out of here without the intention of actually doing something. Repentance actually means action. It's not just, yeah, I'm sorry I did that, and then go back to business as usual. Repentance means to turn away from it. Father, thank you for this time that we can just reflect upon what we've heard and that we would know the truth. That we would believe it. Submit to it. That we wouldn't try to work our little magic with it. That we would take it just as it is. That you would grant us the ability to believe it. To love it. To live and obey it. May we be refreshed during this time of remembering what Christ did at Calvary and through the tomb. I pray, Lord, that this would be a sweet time in your presence. We wouldn't be rushed or hurried, that we would literally pray and pray and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to reveal to us right in this moment where we really are at And that we would know that your grace abounds. And that we would receive that grace again, anew. That our lives would be reset into your will and on mission for you, Christ. May we enjoy this time and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.